Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Later in the programme, I'll be talking to Irishman and author Mark O'Neill about some of the Irish people who have made a contribution to Hong Kong, as this week we celebrate St Patrick's Day, the National Day of Ireland. But first... It's 50 years since more than 14,000 excited Hong Kong fans packed into the old Hong Kong Stadium on March the 19th, 1972, to listen to the Bee Gees. In fact, there were so many that some did just that. Listen, as they may do with being behind the stage. The Bee Gees, brothers Barry, Morris and Robin Gibb, had started out in 1958 in Manchester, England, before moving to Australia. By 1972, they were already huge in Asia, but it would take until the disco era and the movie Saturday Night Fever and Greece for them to be really successful in America. Robin and Morris Gibb have passed away, but the man who was their Asia tour operator is still regularly in touch with Barry, who recently came out with his country album Greenfields. Peto Lang has been a concert tour promoter of both local and international groups, including the Bee Gees. I talked to him about that concert 50 years ago and why the sound of the Bee Gees' more mellow songs has been so popular in Asia. Well, I was a big fan of theirs. This late 60s, early 70s, they had a lot of big hits already in, in England, like uh, To Love Somebody, uh, Words. Yes, so they would come to Hong Kong. Now, was that a part of an Asia-wide concert tour? Yes, it was an Asian tour, actually. You see, I promoted three British acts before, you know, uh, before the Bee Gees. The Marmalade, you know, the Tremblos, and the yes. uh, Middle of the Road. And uh, the Bee Gees was my four acts, very big, and they were huge. And um, I had a big concert in the Open Air Stadium because there's no venue. Uh, I could only use the Hong Kong Stadium which is an old stadium, not now. The maximum capacity was 28,000 people, and uh, I had half of it, 14,000. So uh, those people who bought the tickets late, they had to see from the side. They only had a side view of the stadium. Actually, the tickets were sold out. Before the concert started, there were already thousands of people asking if they could get in, if they can buy tickets or whatever. And they blocked the so-called road. The cars could not get through of them. So the police asked me if I could open the backside. That what? You, you asked them to come in, sitting in the back, just listening to them? Because yes, that's the only way. Otherwise, there are all thousands outside. And while you are playing the, in the concert, they would probably stem the gate. So I had to open the stadium, the backside, and charge them $5 each. Yes, you can't imagine that, right? See, only the back. See, today, I think you can still, people have concerts. The concert halls, they see the back on the podium, something like that, paying less money. Yeah. I had a very legendary life. I started uh, in the music business as a, a journalist. I wrote music column, and uh, I was a reporter for a newspaper called China Mail. And then I, I became the entertainment editor of the Hong Standard. And then I started uh, promoting the Bee Gees 
in international concerts. And I met the Bee Gees manager who came to Hong Kong. It was Robert Stickwood. Robert Stickwood was also the movie producer of uh, Seven Night Fever and the Grease. Because I was a reporter, I had the chance of meeting a lot of international big names in music. And in those days, uh, there was not much uh, international concert in Hong Kong because there was uh, no big promoter. And uh, Robert asked me if I would become a concert promoter. I said, I was actually doing some low concert. So I said, I can give you PGs. I said, you mean it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So that was the start of it. And uh, Robert was contemplating a concert tour of the Far East for the boys. Uh, they were getting more and more popular in London, but of course in Hong Kong, we play the radio, we, we know all the hits. Everybody in Hong Kong, was, even taxi drivers, they know the hits. They were so big. They didn't realize that they were that big until they came to Hong Kong. I don't believe I could sell out 14,000 tickets, okay? So I made a, my first bucket of gold from concert. <laughs> so that was yeah. the a football stadium? Yes, the Hong Kong the Hong Kong stadium, we call it, yeah. Now you can have concerts there because there's so many apartments around the stadium and they complain about the noise. The place was very good, a very ideal spot for a big concerts. Yeah. Notice on your promotion material that there's Barry, Robin, Morris and Jeff. Jeff Almost. was the drummer, actually. Ah. Jeff was kind of a standing drummer for a tour, actually. I see. So he wasn't a gib brother. There's just the three gib brothers. So, um, I mean, often when people think about the Bee Gees, it's their disco era later on, but they, they're already very famous, aren't they, by the time they come to Hong Kong in 1972? Oh, yeah, they are right. It's not too big in America, you know. Uh, they were very, very big in Asia. See, their style, the music style, the kind of uh, uh, romantic thing is good with uh, the Asians, Japan. South Singapore, Malaysia, uh, Philippines. I took, I, I brought them to Philippines. I handled the two actually, you know, not just Hong Kong. Oh. Uh, Indonesia, there was a, a very heavy concert, you know, we had a big rainstorm. Concerts supposed to start at seven. It was so heavy rain, the stadium, the biggest uh, stadium in, in Jakarta. And they were all sitting in the rain, waiting for them to come on. So from seven, they wait until 8.30 or nine. Then we go on stage, you see, we dare not go out. The promoter back there, don't go, you know, otherwise they will ride. They came all here to wait, it's, but how could we sing in the rain? I mean, in those days, uh, it was kind of dangerous, you see. Not the equipment today, which is now uh, waterproof, but in those days, very dangerous. So we waited the rain to stop. And the orchestra, <laughs> half the orchestra already gone home. Oh, no. Because there's no more concert. Yes. <laughs> you were asking about the concert uh, in Hong Kong. They brought their own orchestra. But the Jakarta concert was not the same year. It was in 75. We used a local orchestra. So tell me, so the, this was the first concert 50 years ago here in Hong Kong. Yes. And uh, since yes. then, you've had a decades-long connection with uh, the Bee Gees. Now, what do you feel that the appeal of their songs was in Hong Kong? The appeal? Well, I see so much charisma in the song. The melody is nice. They sing well, romantic. You know, I mean, the melody is great. Harmony is great. I also did a karaoke for them. Yeah, it's 1992. The only karaoke in the world. Yes. Yeah, so describe that to me. So it's basically everybody can then just sing along to their songs. Yeah, right, right. It's the only one made for the Bee Gees, no more, because the contract expired. That's a legend now. If you have the album, uh, you can auction it for a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> 
So tell me about, you know, as you say, Barry Gibb, you, you still very much know, but uh, can you yeah. tell me a little bit about uh, meeting Barry, Robin and Morris? Oh, I met them, of course, uh, on three tours. And not just that, I went to America to see them from time to time. They live in Miami. I attended the uh, one night only concert in Las Vegas, you know, as a part of promotion. I had, uh, I run a, a BG's, uh, a singer like concert, you know, oh, so yes. everybody, yeah, come. It was, a, it was an Asian thing. I mean, uh, the, the winner from, from Mila from Singapore, they come to Hong Kong to, to do a competition. When the first BG's concert is held here in 1972, of course, that's not during the, I mean, we know Barry Gibb and his falsetto voice later on with his disco, with, with mm-hmm. their, their disco time. But at the yeah, time, right. the, B, the Bee Gees in the early 70s, isn't that, it's not that kind of music, would you say? Yes, no, no, no. It, it's kind of, uh, do you know all the Bee Gees songs? Some. I won't claim to know all. That would be not telling yeah. the truth. But no, I know a number of them, enough to know the different phases. Yeah, the faith, first phase, yeah. I mean, all the phases are good, actually. Mm. They are great songwriters. In fact, uh, uh, they wrote, uh, what, what you heard is only about one-fifth of their written. Oh. Well, they, they, had, they wrote every day. Their work is just open, open their eyes and they play music in the studio. They work in the studio, like, you know, we go to the office, nine to five. Every day they do that. So they have lots of songs written. Do you have a hmm? favourite? Do you have a favourite? Oh, the Gigi song? Yeah. Oh, so many. So many. <laughs> you see, it depends, on, it depends on your mood, you see. If you are going to in a playful, you like, uh, you know, all these disco songs. Uh, if you are going to sleep, maybe you, you'd like to listen to these old songs, Massachusetts, you know. Somebody, uh, how can you mend a broken heart?
My thanks to Peto Lang talking there about the 50th anniversary of the first Bee Gees concert at the old Hong Kong Stadium. On Thursday, it was the annual St. Patrick's Day, the National Day of Ireland. I chatted with Irishman and author Mark O'Neill about St. Patrick, a Christian missionary who came to Ireland in the 5th century, and also the Irish here over the decades and their major contribution to Hong Kong. This is the National Day of Ireland, March the 17th, and it's named after St. Patrick, who was a freed slave who became a priest, and he came to Ireland and he converted the Irish to Catholicism. So this is considered a monumental day in the civilization of the people. And then he did many other things. Uh, he got rid of snakes in Ireland. I'm not really sure if this is the truth, but this is widely believed by people. Until very recently, Catholicism was considered an absolutely essential part of the Irish character and the Irish nation. Now, in recent years, this has changed because of everything that's happened in the church, the secularization of society in the whole of Western Europe. Church ascendance has fallen very dramatically. And the last figure I saw was only seven young people now are studying for the priesthood in Ireland, only seven. So in that sense, the identification of Catholicism and Irishness is changing. But until recently, until 1980s, for people in the south of Ireland, Catholicism and Irishness were very interlinked. Now, of course, for people in the north of Ireland, it's a different matter because a majority of people in the north, they prefer to remain with the United Kingdom. And they find this identification with Catholicism very off-putting and was the major reason why they didn't want to join the Irish Republic when it was founded in 1922. Nine of the Hong Kong colonial governors were Irish and many Irish who came here were priests and nuns who helped in healthcare and social missions. There were doctors, teachers, lawyers and men who were soldiers or joined the police force. In more recent times, there's the outstanding Olympic swimmer Siobhan Hawhey, who's celebrated by both Hong Kong and Ireland. But why did the Irish come to Hong Kong? In all sectors, there were many, many Irish people involved in Hong Kong. And the reason for this was that Ireland was, until quite recently, a poor country. It had a good education system. So you had many very well-qualified and very able people, and they didn't have opportunities at home. So they wanted to find opportunities abroad. So many of them found work in colonies of Britain all over the world. And Hong Kong was one very attractive one. So the, the contribution of Irish people to the construction of Hong Kong is really, it cannot be overstated. Of the nine governors, uh, I think the one most interesting is John Pope Hennessy. Now, he was the only Catholic among the nine governors, and he arrived in Hong Kong with a very unusual mindset. He was very much pro-Chinese. And as you can imagine, most governors were very much favoring the colonial elite, the colonial citizens here above the Chinese. But Pope Hennessy, because he was a Catholic Irish person, he identified with the Chinese. So he did a lot of things here to promote the Chinese people. For example, he opened central to development by Chinese. They could reside there, they could open businesses there, they could develop there. And he also wanted to, to put Chinese into the LegCo. He was detested by the existing expatriate community here. 
So the more he was welcomed by the Chinese, the more he was detested by the British population then. As you can imagine, the normal procedure was when a governor left, it was a very major event and uh, representatives of all the parts of the government and the big companies and so forth would go to see him off as a courtesy. But when Hennessy left, there was nobody from the expatriate uh, communities that went to see him off, but there were representations from the Chinese business community who went and they presented him with gifts and they thanked him very much for his service here. I mean, he was very progressive in the sense that he favored the Chinese, but on the other hand, a colony is a colony. It's run by British civil servants and British companies. So to be effective governor, you have to be able to work with them as well. Sir John Pope Hennessy, who was governor of Hong Kong for five years from 1877. Now jumping from the 19th century up to very recently, there is, of course, the outstanding swimmer Siobhan Hawhey, who won two silver medals for Hong Kong at the Tokyo Olympics, among other achievements. Hawhey's father is Irish, her mother Hong Kong Chinese. She is a remarkable person. I mean, she is what we call an island Hong Kong joint venture because her her father is an Irish accountant and her mother is a Hong Kong lady. And so she grew up with both cultures. She's very famous in Ireland because her great uncle was Charles Hoi, and he was one of the most important premiers of Ireland since independence. And therefore, as soon as you say her name to anybody in Ireland, they immediately know of her. So during the Tokyo Olympics, the, the people in the world that followed her progress were the Irish public and the Hong Kong public. And so she did extraordinarily well. She got two silver medals. She was just inches away from the gold medals for swimming. And another thing impressed me a lot was her poise in dealing with the media, you know, because you come out of the pool, you're absolutely exhausted and elated. And of course, the media immediately land on you and you have to answer lots of questions. And I found her ability to answer in English or in Cantonese or in Mandarin in a very graceful way, uh, in a very elegant way. And I think she won the hearts of the Irish public and the Hong Kong public at the same time. Now, as you've mentioned, uh, there was uh, any number of Irish people who came to Hong Kong and contributed to Hong Kong, including teachers, a number of priests who were also sometimes doctors who fought uh, tuberculosis, who helped uh, with growing trees here post-war. There's uh, any number of people who've contributed to Hong Kong. But uh, can you give us another individual that you'd like to just pick out? One who was very distinguished was called J.J. Francis. He came here as a barrister and was a very successful barrister. He made a very good living as a barrister. But just like Pope Hennessy, he had a great feeling and a sympathy for the Chinese citizens here. So once his business was established and doing very well, he devoted a lot of his time to improving the condition of the Chinese citizens here. And one way was he was one of the founders of Polongok, as you know, today is the biggest charity in Hong Kong. And he was one of the founders there. And they did a lot of work for women, children and the elderly people in Hong Kong. He was also very involved in medicine. He helped to build the first hospital here, which provided Western medical care for Chinese people. And he also set up the College of Medicine here, which was, again, the first where Chinese people could study Western medicine. Previously, they had to go abroad to do this. 
And one of the earliest students was Dr. Sun Yat-sen, who became the first president of the Republic of China. And the final thing which J.J. Francis did was during the, the bubonic plague in the 1890s, he was on the sanitary board and he was extremely active and it was an extremely challenging time. It was somewhat similar to now with COVID, but worse, because of course they didn't have all the vaccines and all the medical science that we have now. And the quarantine was the right way to go, but of course, many people didn't accept to be quarantined and disposing of the bodies was also very controversial. So he played an outstanding role in this. But at the end, there was a very sour note because the governor wanted to award him and the chief of police for their services during this time. So he had the chief of police, who was, of course, a very high civil servant. He gave him a British medal. But for J.J. Francis, he only got a silver inkstand. Francis was extremely insulted by this and, and wouldn't accept it. And it tells us very sadly that even you make all the contributions that he did to Hong Kong, he did not belong to this very small elite of society here who ran colony. He was regarded by them as an outsider because he was Irish and he was Catholic. So at this moment, they wouldn't give him equal treatment to a senior civil servant. So that's John Joseph Francis, who was a lawyer who lived in Hong Kong from 1859 to 1901 and was instrumental in battling the bubonic plague in 1894 as a member of the sanitary board. The plague killed more than 2,000 people in one month, and between 1894 and 1901, 8,600 people died of the disease. John Francis also supported Wu Ting Fung as the first Chinese barrister in Hong Kong and also as a member of the Legislative Council. Wu Ting Fung would later become China's ambassador to the United States and then China's foreign minister. Other prominent Irish include John Prendergast, an anti-terrorism expert who rooted out corruption in the police force, and Beth Coulter, who was instrumental in making the Hong Kong Rugby Sevens into a huge sporting event. Yes, uh, now this this is a very interesting case too. Her name is Beth Coulter. She's from a modest family in Belfast. She fell in love with a teacher in Belfast, and this was in the time of the Troubles. And of course, it was a very difficult time then in the north of Ireland, and many people wanted to leave. So her husband came here and became a police inspector. And she started to work with the Hong Kong Rugby Union. And she started off in quite a modest position. But she was a lady of great charm, warmth. She was very hardworking. She made very good connections with people. And her great achievement here was to build up the Hong Kong Rugby Sevens into the most important event of its kind in the world. Now, we, unfortunately, we, we haven't seen it during COVID, but uh, I'm sure everyone remembers uh, enormous crowds, teams from all over the world, fans come from all over the world to attend. It's a sort of three-day festival of rugby. And she was the main architect of this. And she was so successful at it that the, the world rugby body invited her to go and work for them. So when her husband retired from his work in the police, they moved back to Ireland. And this world body is based in Dublin. So that's where they lived. And she went to work for them. And she continued her work spreading the world of rugby around the world and, and, and arranging tournaments and, and so forth. And very tragically, just after she retired, uh, she passed away. So it's extremely unfortunate. 
and for this book, which I'm writing with Irish Consul David Costello, we were very fortunate to meet her husband and one of her daughters on their visits to Hong Kong, and we interviewed them about uh, Beth, and they gave us a very vivid account of her life and what she'd done. I'm also looking forward to talking to the Consul General David Costello about his wonderful idea just to mark and, and uh, pay respects to and celebrate Hong Kong's Irish culture um, and also the contrib contributions by numerous uh, Irish people to Hong Kong. And that book goes up to 1920 and has been uh, researched and written by, by you, Mark. So um, is the book coming out shortly? Well, we started with a very small book, you see. <laughs> we thought it would be all be done in a few months. <laughs> but <laughs> The book became fatter and fatter, and it became so fat we had to make two books. Ah. Well, now we've got volume one, which is from the start of Hong Kong to 1922, which is Irish yes. independence. Volume one. And as far as, as I understand, and David will know much better than me, that is, the text is now ready. I think the photographs are, uh, are ready. And as far as I know, David is now arranging publishers at the moment. So let him give you the, the, the most up-to-date news. Now, volume two is 1922 to now. The, the first volume will come out this year. Mm. I'm not so sure about volume two. But I must say that uh, COVID has been a, a blight on this book too, because the normal practice is for St. Patrick's Day, members of the Irish cabinet fly around the world. They go to Washington, they go to Beijing, they go to Boston, they go to Paris, they go to anywhere with a large Irish contingent. And David's plan was that whoever the member of the cabinet was that came to China, Beijing, Shanghai, or Hong Kong, or both, they would come to Hong Kong and we would have a big event and we would invite hundreds of people. And this would be the launch of the book. And that this would be ideal because, you know, you have a senior member of the Irish government here and uh, you would launch it in, in style. But unfortunately, because of COVID, it's not been possible. So not quite sure how we're going to organize the launch this year. Now, this Hong Kong heritage is being broadcast just after St. Patrick's Day, when Irish Consul General David Costello and the Irish Consulate, local dance groups and the St. Patrick's Society worked hard to put on events online, including special guests like Siobhan Hawhey. The clock tower in Chimsa Choi was bathed in green lighting. The peninsula also was swaddled in green. No doubt you could get a green pint of Guinness somewhere. While events in Hong Kong were subdued due to the Covid outbreak here, St Patrick's Day is a massive event, not only in Ireland, but also in the Irish communities around the world. In Boston, the river sometimes is dyed green. There are also street parades, shamrocks, leprechauns, Irish music and Guinness and Irish whiskey. Like his missionary grandfather, who was based in China, Mark O'Neill doesn't drink alcohol. Like my grandfather, I'm a teetotaler, so uh, I don't enjoy uh, some of the rituals and traditions which most Irish people enjoy. And uh, as you know, Ireland was the world's number one whiskey producer in the 18th century. And I don't quite know how it happened, but Scotland has now taken over this title. And in the meantime, Ireland is bitterly trying to win it back again. And there are many new small Irish distilleries starting and they're progressing. But of course, there's still quite a long way to go to catch up with the Scottish ones. 
And of course, there are many other distinguished uh, Irish drinks too, of which Guinness is the most famous. So a lot of them would be consumed on St. Patrick's Day. My thanks to Irishman and author Mark O'Neill talking there on St. Patrick's Day and the contribution of the Irish community to Hong Kong. My thanks also to Peto Leung. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. Mm-hmm.